0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app if you download the app. And then you can listen anywhere you go. You can also catch some of our uh, other previously recorded interviews and conversations on our SoundCloud if you happen to miss part and or all of one of the ones that we've done before. My guest on the show today is Judith Ganatahawi-Skyler. She is an Indigenous filmmaker from the United Nation of the Thames, which is southwest of London, Ontario, which is very close to where the Forest City Film Festival is taking place. And that's handy because... Judith is the Forest City Film Festival Indigenous Program Curator, and we're going to be talking to her about the film festival today. And that uh, film festival is running from October 19th to the 30th. You can find out more by going to their website at F-C-F-F You can find out all about the films. You can find about, about uh, purchasing tickets and when films are running. And so it's a pleasure to have Judith with me on the show to talk about the film festival because this year, 2021, marks the largest year for the Forest City Film Festival. And it also marks another milestone because there are a multitude of Indigenous produced and centric programs to present in competition, special screenings, and as part of the Ontario Screening Creators Conference. So, Judith, welcome.
2: Sigoli David, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, Sigoli Sego. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. So, uh, it's an exciting year for the Film Festival.
2: Yeah, there's actually a lot of um, First Nations or Indigenous programming outside of the Indigenous program this year, which is really good, which is in, you know, the regular competition. Um, So, that's really good. That we're expanding, not just within the Indigenous section, but are um, getting in, in included in the festival in all different areas as well, and that's great.
0: Mm. So, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So, the
2: what I programmed um, uh, the feature film is Beans, mm. which was um, written, co-written, and directed by Tracy Deer, who is Mohawk from yeah. Gunawage. Mm. And it is about the Oka crisis. Mm-hmm. So it is a really, really great film that everyone should see. In it's um, production year of 2020. So it was last year. Right. Um, but it's, a re- it's based on true events. It's actually based on uh, Tracy Deer's experience when she was a, a young girl. So that's what makes that perspective really interesting in that film.
0: Right. I remember hearing about this. Uh, it sounds great. Um, so as I said, once before, uh, people want to find out more, they can go to the uh, website for the Forest City Film Festival. Go to fcff.ca. And I love uh, the program. Lots of stuff to see throughout there as well.
2: Yeah. And then the the second program that I um, curated is the shorts program. And what makes this one really special is I included a variety of genres uh, this year. So there's, um, there's some documentaries, there's comedies, there's animation, there's experimental. So I wanted to kind of give London, Ontario, a wide variety Mm. um, to view and also the film's, Um, span years from like, I think the oldest film is from 2009 Mm -hmm. and right up to 2021. So it's a wide variety of programming in case it's someone's first time, you know, watching Mm -hmm. indigenous work, Um, they'll, they'll get a wide variety um, to be able to look at.
0: That's great. Now, I know that uh, there is two other people, at least that I know of from Six Nations, that have, have film mentors uh, entered into this as well.
2: Yes. So we have Zoe Hopkins,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and she um, has Mohawk Midnight Runners, which is from 2013. And I just love this film because although it is dealing with, you know, a sort of a serious topic, um, because, you know, the main character has lost a friend to suicide, but it's actually really funny as well. Um, He turns that into, you know, a sort of comedic, um, into a comedic, you know, sort of film and how he deals with that. Mm. So that's, that's something that's really different. And then we also have Janet Rogers and Janet Rogers is not only hosting um, the Q and A's, for Beans and the Shorts program. Right. But she also has other films in the regular um, programming as well.
0: Yeah, she does. Ego of a Nation. And um, um, I'm going to be having her on uh, the show as well after you to talk about her involvement, not only with this uh, film festival, but a number of other things that she has going on. She's very busy right now.
2: Oh, Janet yeah. is a jack of all trades. <laughs> that's why when um you know when i knew i wasn't going to be in london or even in the country mm. uh during the festival this year i janet was the first person that came to my mind that i was mm. like no janet is perfect for this um because you know she's a really she's a really animated person she's a character you know Mm -hmm. i love janet Mm -hmm. and she also does so many things you know like she's on radio she's a a poet she's um you know a filmmaker she she does so many things um that she's just the perfect person to do that
0: right how much time would a person need uh to spend at the festival in order to take in all these films Geez, I don't know. I mean, like what you could do, the, the thing that's
2: good about this festival this year is that it's both online and in person. Oh, yeah. So the first week, everything is in person. Mm. And of course you need to uh, show your uh, double vaccination card in, yep. or in order to get into any venues, I think in Ontario at this yeah. point. Mm-hmm. Um. So if you miss the in-person screenings or if it's sold out because it is a uh, limited capacity at this right. time, yep. Um. then you can always watch it online the following week. So, you should be able to see everything that you want to see between the in-person screenings and the online festival as well.
0: Right. So if people are, are watching it virtually, um, are they still purchasing tickets for that?
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. So the, the tickets, um, I don't know if there's a ticket price difference. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure about that. I have mm-hmm. to check that, but um, yes, you still have to purchase them, but anything That comes with the in-person screening, like the Q&As, they will still be recorded and they will still be included with the online um, screenings as well.
0: Great. I was going to ask you that as well, because that would be uh, nice to to see. Now, in the first week when the Q&As are being held, will they be will they be streamed live at the time or is this something that's just going to add on later on? I
2: don't know if they will be streamed live, yeah. but they will definitely be live after the Q and A's. Some of the filmmakers will be there yep. at the actual screening and mm-hmm. some of them will just be on Zoom, but they will right. be, you know, yeah. um, tapped in and they will be on the screen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Not only, you know, have you curated some of these uh, and, and this Indigenous film portion of the, of the festival, but you're also a filmmaker yourself.
2: Yes, I, I am a filmmaker. I'm an emerging filmmaker. Mm. Uh, I'm actually, I just actually um, am in partnership with the Bawadan Collective. So I will be shooting a short film here in New Zealand, Aotearoa, very mm. soon. Mm. Um, And that will be coming out in February.
0: Nice. That's great. Congratulations. Thank you.
2: Now, and- Yep, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> and I will also be um, coming back to Canada to shoot another short film that I've been funded for already. Mm. Um, and I will be shooting that in hopefully March or April. So that'll be next year. I should have a film in the festival. <laughs>
0: mm. That's great. Uh, congratulations. Now, uh, is this your first year with the festival, or how many years have you been with the festival?
2: This is actually my second year with the festival. So we last year um dorothy had gotten in contact with me just letting me know that she wanted you know to have specifically curated indigenous made works mm. and because that went so well last year we just carried it on and we'll probably continue to do this um you know, mm. forever yeah. at this point, yeah, sure. <laughs> because it's, it's so important um, that we keep sharing these works with the forest city film festival and with, with London and the surrounding area, because it's been something that hasn't been around. Mm-hmm. And I know that if, when I was younger and living in London, if I had had access to these sorts of films and um you know, been able to look at the wide variety, again, like I'm saying uh, of talent and of possibilities mm-hmm. that maybe I would have started my film career a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that is my hope um, with bringing these works to the area is to show, you know, some of the smaller communities that, um, that this is a possibility. This is, you know, being a filmmaker or, being in films, being an actor or working mm-hmm. on, on set is a possibility and should be seriously considered.
0: Right. And not only that, it, it's also showcasing uh, many of the people from the actual region, right? It's, uh, it's great in that respect because it's not only, like you just said, uh, you know, giving people ideas about working in the industry. It's also uh, showing people that, hey, you don't have to come from Toronto or a large city to start participating in this.
2: Exactly. And it's also um, representation. Mm. The other thing is that, you know, we were misrepresented for many years Mm. um, in cinema Mm. and in media. And now that we are here and really showcasing um, our people, it's really important that we are at the table with everybody else so that people see us they they start to get familiar with us and we aren't this you know this mythical sort of thing that we were before you know Mm -hmm. as indigenous people um and also getting away from the idea that we are these you know stoic emotionless people Mm. um Because that's obviously just not accurate. And that is also what I feel this program shows is a wide variety of emotions.
0: Right. The other side of this, of course, is that there's some, there's either some live music or there's definitely some music videos that are incorporated.
2: Yeah. I mean, Janet's, I believe that Janet's um, other film or two other films are... (laughs) include music mm. but i don't know if they're music videos per se they might be
0: i'm looking through the program um and uh i i know that that i saw one specific uh music video uh that is maybe just getting played but i think it was entered um in in this uh and it's by a six nation artist uh, solidarity and uh are you familiar with that one
2: I'm not actually, I'll have to look at that.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I know that because I interviewed uh, Josh Miller, who is the the artist behind the song and the, and the video itself. So uh, um, it, it's great that he's, uh, he's being, um, uh, you know, at least featured here.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm just, I'm so glad that we're all over this festival, mm-hmm. you know, because we, we are in the area, we are there and it's just about, Again, representation, visibility, so that not only we see ourselves on screen and in music and what have you, but that other people see us as well. Right.
0: Yeah, so here we go. On, on if people are looking through the, the uh program, it's on page twenty-five. So it says music videos. So uh he, he's under there, but it's under a different name. Uh, Pappy John's blues band, it's under. Uh but I know that Josh is the main uh singer and songwriter uh of that of the the song because it had him on the show. It was, uh,
2: oh it was, that is amazing. Yeah. I love Pappy John's band. <laughs> yeah. They actually um they actually had band members from my nation as well on mm. nation. So yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And I love that
0: so much. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Um, so uh, Juth, tell me a little bit more about yourself and what you were doing prior to joining the festival.
2: Well, before I started curating for the forest city film festival, I was at the imaginative film festival mm-hmm. um, or imaginative film and media arts festival for six years. Mm. So the knowledge that I have of, indigenous content worldwide is pretty extensive um, as I was on the programming team and, you know, was also the programming coordinator, which basically meant that I was, you know, sometimes the first and only contact for all of the filmmakers, um, radio artists, Mm -hmm. and um, for a little while, digital media as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I know a lot of a lot of the filmmakers. I know a lot of their their careers, um, and that makes it really easy for me to be able to program works for a variety of festivals. I'm also working with the Wairoa Film Festival here in New Zealand, and I also programmed a shorts program for them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and because each film festival, they have different requirements, right? Like obviously the Forest City, mm-hmm. um, the content or the filmmakers has to be around southwestern Ontario. Um, Widera just wanted um First Nations and Native American films from Canada and the US mm. because obviously that's the portion that that they're missing over here. Like they have a lot of um New Zealand and Australian content. Um, that gets programmed at the festivals here. Hmm. So that is something that really comes in handy for me when I'm curating um, for different festivals.
0: So you said uh, here in New Zealand, you're there right now speaking to me from New Zealand?
2: Yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs)
0: overlooked that fact when we started the, what time is it
2: it is 7:19 a.m. here oh okay
0: <laughs> right <laughs> yeah well i just spoke with someone the other day in in australia i didn't realize there was like four different time zones in australia i had no idea
2: yeah australia is actually
0: Really huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the show is Judith Schuyler. We are talking to her about the Forest City Film Festival. She is the Indigenous Program Curator. And the, uh, the film festival runs from October 19th to the 30th. And you can find out more by going to the Forest City Film Festival website. That is fcff.ca and there you can actually scroll and you can you can actually click on the program and it will open up for you and it's great, you, you can flip through it just like a real program and it's kind of cool. Uh, in there, you're going to see uh, all the things that are available starting, like I said, on Tuesday, October the 19th and uh, running right up until the end. Now, uh, every, as uh, Judith has pointed out, the first week is all going to be live presentations, so there's going to be uh, of course COVID protocols in place uh, but you can find out about tickets going online by going to their website that I just mentioned, find out all about uh, any films you might be interested in attending if you'd like to go and uh, check out London for, uh, for a couple of days or a weekend or whatever it might be, maybe the whole festival but uh, remember that there will be protocol uh, guidelines in effect and uh, you'll probably have to show your vaccination status at that point that make sure you're double vaxxed but if you can't get there as judith also pointed out it's going to be virtual Uh, after that you can get to see things online including the q a's that are going to take place after some of the uh, film presentations and uh, judith curated the uh, the indigenous element of this now there are a number of different things throughout the festival you've got narrative features you got narrative shorts uh, and uh, there's documentary features as well as documentary shorts and so there's a number animated there's some animated film uh, shorts in here as well music videos uh, it's it's a great festival and there is of course what we're talking about the indigenous films that are in here uh, and and part of this festival as well which uh, is I understand Judith this is uh th- this is a, an increase in the number of indigenous films this year is it
2: yeah, I believe this is the the most Indigenous programming that the Forest City has had. And that's with, I think, with me bringing on a few people last year, people are now um, recognizing the Forest City as, mm. you know, we need to bring our films here as well. And recognizing that there is a deep need for Indigenous made films to the area, mm. Um, you know, they're, they, they're, they need it, you know, it, when, when there's been sort of a gap in a audience or, you know, where, where they could be um, showcasing their films, mm-hmm. uh, filmmakers really take advantage of that, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, uh, it's super important that we get our work out everywhere. Mm-hmm. The other thing is um, I think that everyone Is recognizing the need for Indigenous made works, you know, not just um, works told by non-Indigenous people, but works that are written, directed, produced by Native people, showcasing the talents of Native people is Mm. super important. Mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There's no question about that. And I was going to ask you this question as well. Um, from the time you, you spent, you said you were six years at the Imaginative Film Festival. And from that time until now, what have you seen change in terms of the uh, number of people either involved or coming forward or making films or in the industry? Um, how, how, what have you seen from your own experience?
2: I've seen the talent has expanded. Mm -hmm. and everybody is taking more risks now and everybody's finding their voice. Mm. You know, filmmakers, you know, no one starts out, you know, with, you know, an Oscar winner. (laughs) Everyone starts out um, finding their voice, finding out what you know, what works, what doesn't work. And that's, that's, that's what short films do. You know, they get your, they get your feet wet Mm. so that you start to understand what works and what doesn't work Mm. and what sort of storyteller you are. And then once you get past the short films, then that's when you start making feature film works, which is what every filmmaker wants to get to. You know, you want to get to that feature film where your film is going to be playing in
0: the big cinemas. Mm. Right in there with the big boys.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I, I guess it's like any other industry, though, right? Whether you're say uh, a musician or whatever it is, uh, once you you get to that level where your 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 films or your CD or whatever it is that's put out there alongside of the other uh, major market uh, industry makers um, who may have uh, bazillions more dollars to put into promotion or whatever it might be. Um, It's, it's a challenge like anything else.
2: Yeah. And the thing that we have working for us right now is that the world and, you know, North America, Canada, and the U S is really starved for, first nations and native American content right now. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really good. It's really good for us. You know, like we have also reservation dogs, which is on mm-hmm. um, streaming online right now, mm-hmm. which is really picking up. Um, and that's really good for us. That's really good for filmmakers. That's really good for representation. And all it does is keep opening those doors for the rest of us that We can make these films. We can make these television programs. We can, um, you know, have these actors out there. And I think we just need to just keep expanding that representation because we deserve a seat at the table as well. And we have enough talent to be able to do that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Now, as you're in New Zealand, what are you seeing down there? How how are things in, in general? And also, um, I'm sure you're you're are participating or uh, involved with some of the indigenous people down there. What what is life like down there for you right now?
2: <laughs> well, my partner is Maori. Oh, nice. So, and she is also a filmmaker. Great. So i I know uh, we actually met at the film festival mm. <laughs> in Canada. <laughs> ah. Um. So I, uh, actually, the only people that I know here are filmmakers <laughs> <laughs> or festival directors. Um, so, yes, I, I I am surrounded by um, the Indigenous filmmaking world down here as well, mm. which is really good for me. Mm. Um, my partner is also, you know, um sharing with me and developing me with my scripts as well. Mm. Cause I'm also um, developing a feature film script. Mm. So it's, it's really helping me also, you know, I'm with my partner, but sure. also it's really helping me develop as a filmmaker and as a storyteller as well. Right. And also I get to see, you know, a lot of the the Maori content films while mm. I'm here yeah. because um, the Maori people are really at the top of their game when it comes to filmmaking as well. So it's really good to be here at, at this point in, in, in the filmmaking
0: history as well. Mm. And, and what part of the country are you in? I'm in the North Island, mm-hmm. and we are about
2: three hours south of Auckland, which is... Okay where there's a big COVID outbreak right now oh,
0: wow. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> okay well it sounds great and congratulations to you and uh, you know I think that uh, working remotely uh, certainly it seems to be going okay for you at this point in time considering you're down there working on this uh, the festival and, uh, and getting things done
2: well I was already working remotely before I left mm. and when I was in Toronto uh, at my last year at Imaginative which was only like eight months ago (laughs) acting like it was a long time ago (laughs) um we were all working remotely anyways so it it hasn't really changed in the past a year and a half now i think so yeah. we were working online then we weren't in the office we did the online festival um and so it's still sort of just continuing i'm just in a different spot now yeah
0: <laughs> yeah exactly and that's exactly what i mean so it, it, it's not surprising anymore um for for that to have happened and to continue to happen it's made the world a lot smaller in many ways
2: yeah it has and I, and I think it's a good thing. Um, you know we we all realize at this point that we don't necessarily have to be in the same office to get done what we have to get done
0: <laughs> or on the same continent for that matter <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, listen to the quality of our our, of our conversation. it's great, you know I mean who would have, who would have thought right
2: yeah, and there's other um you know I was supposed to be speaking to the London free press mm. and in a couple of days uh, about the forest city as well, and right. he was like, "What the heck are you doing in new zealand like what 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 is going on
0: <laughs> Well, I certainly am envious of you being down there and uh, but certainly am very honored that you took the time to join us and and get up early to uh, talk to us about the the uh, forest city Film festival so uhnyagoa for for doing so
2: yes, and thank you for having me and i I will always um do my best to promote um, filmmakers, indigenous filmmakers and indigenous made films, because uh, that is my passion mm. to get us out there and to get our representation higher and higher and higher. Um, and that is why I became a filmmaker myself because, mm. you know, I saw a lack of representation in media. And so mm. I was like, how are we going, how can we increase that? Well, someone's got to write the stories right, to put our people on the screen. Mm-hmm. So, That's that that's my main my main goal is to just get us out there.
0: Right. Great. Judith, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about the Forest City Film Festival, which is coming up from October 19th to the 30th, you can check it out on their website at fcff.ca. There you can find out about tickets, you can find out about times, you can find out about all the films and all the categories that they have that are going to be running. Uh, As mentioned earlier, uh, the festival is going to be live for the first week and then everything is going to transfer over to the virtual side of things. So if you can't make it there in person, you certainly can see it online as well. So uh, now i will go to uh, Judith for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about this. Judith uh, Schuyler is a, an Indigenous filmmaker from the United Nation of the Thames, and that is southwest of London, although she happens to be in New Zealand right now. And uh, she's also <laughs> the, uh, the Forest City Film Festival Indigenous Program Curator for the second year in a row. Congratulations to her and all the best in the future. And uh, Judith, once again, uh, be well. And uh, all the best in the future. And we look forward to seeing your films coming out soon.
2: Oh, thank you for having me, David.
0: All right. You take care. Okay. Okay. Ona. And that is Judith Schuyler. She is with the Forest City Film Festival and Indigenous Program. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after these messages. Stay tuned. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element, Element,
0: Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show, Shauna McKinnon. She's an Associate Professor and Chair in the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And she is here to talk to us about an Article She co-authored in the conversation. It is called Want to Decolonize Education, Where Classes Are Held Matters. She co-authored this with Kathy Mellett, an Indigenous activist and community research partner. So it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Shauna McKinnon to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I thank you so much for being here on the show to talk about your article and as I say you co-authored that with Kathy Mallett unfortunately Kathy couldn't join us now just a little bit about yourself as I mentioned you're an associate professor and chair at the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies with with, uh, the University of Winnipeg but you've also conducted research on social and economic issues for over 20 years with a focus on public policy poverty and inequity and you are most interested in research that focuses on issues that identified uh, individuals Individuals living in poverty and those working closely with them. And uh, also Dr. McKinnon subscribes to social justice, community-based participatory research approach to research and actively engaging uh, with community partners beyond research to mobilize knowledge and use research as a tool to act, advocate for progressive change. Now, Your article, um, as I was reading it over, I was wondering, I was wondering what kind of feedback you've gotten from this so far, actually?
1: Well, we've got some really positive feedback and just, you know, there just seems to be an interest in this approach. And, you know, the reason why Kathy and I decided to write this piece. um, So yeah, it's too bad Kathy couldn't join, but uh, that is sort of the the challenge um, right now. Everybody's so busy with so Mm. many things. Uh, because you know, we feel we have a, we've developed an interesting approach here um, that people, you know, might, find useful as as they move forward and grapple with, you know, how do we do things differently? How do we, um, you know, genuinely address um, uh, responding to the truth and reconciliation calls to action and And, you know, so it's something that we've been grappling with the long time for a long time, Mm. you know, and again, doing so um, with people who are non-Indigenous as well and in collaboration with people Mm. who are Indigenous uh, in the city of Winnipeg here, where we have a very large Indigenous population.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah,
1: we've been getting some, you know, interesting, uh, interesting feedback.
0: Right now. The premise of your article revolves around the hub of this merchant hotel that has been repurposed um, for education with the University of Winnipeg in the north end of Winnipeg. And it's interesting because I'm wondering if, if the article and with the idea of, of how remote uh, learning and online learning would have, if, if this would have been uh, pronounced as it has been, had it not been for COVID-19.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, for us, you know, everybody's, you know, experienced challenges with with the pandemic and, mm. and making a shift to online learning, uh, but it's particularly problematic for us as we, you know, endeavor to do things differently in this space that is largely Indigenous, bringing Indigenous students together with non-Indigenous students in, in also a city that, you know, has a reputation b- for being... Um, quite racist, Mm. uh, definitely geographically divided. Mm. Um, and so being in the space has been so important. And so, you know, we, we've really struggled uh, not being able to be here. Like I'm, I'm speaking to you now We're I'm back in the space, I'm teaching my classes here, Mm. you know, and so it's really great to be back. But so we decided to do this project, you know, to ask our students how they were experiencing it, experiencing online learning. And, you know, we just know that um, and we're hearing from the students, as we indicate, you know, in the in the article, we're we're still reaching out to get more from our students. But it's just not the same, right, because we have these honest, difficult conversations in the classroom. We have small classes. They're extremely diverse. um, um, And... um, you know, you ju- it's, it's just it's just something that you cannot do online.
0: Right. Now, when you say extremely diverse, are you talking about the mix of students that are in, in the classes? That's
1: right. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we have, I would say, I mean, and, and, and diverse in many ways. So mm. we have, you know, um, probably 40 percent of our students are Indigenous students, mm-hmm. um, a large number of those and it, and as well as not some non-Indigenous Students are from the inner city here in the north end, which is, you know, among the poorest neighborhoods in the country. Mm. Uh, So we have some students who are, you know, have lived their entire lives, often for generations in poverty. And then we have students that come to take courses here who are from the south side. So you're typically middle class um, white students who uh, decide they want to learn in the neighborhood about Mm. the issues that they're studying. And so they venture here to the, to the North end. So we have, you know, you know, and then of course we also have a a large number of newcomers who Mm. live both in the neighborhood and outside of the neighborhood. So, you know, it's diverse in many ways, both um, the, and also the way that we teach, we have. um, So, you know, Kathy and I writing this article together, you know, we're also in the process, we've developed a course together. We're in the process of putting this, Uh, edited book together which Mm. is co-written by academics and non-academic indigenous folks who've been activists in the inner city so you know we try as much as possible to sort of to genuinely be diverse in 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 all ways
0: yes now you mentioned that book uh, which is going to be I understand going to be used as uh, as a class textbook
1: that's right yeah
0: can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: Yeah, it's a super exciting project that builds from um, a project that Kathy was involved in and I was not directly involved in back in 2013 where Kathy and um, Dr. John Loxley, who was previously the principal investigator of the the Manitoba Research Alliance that I'm now the principal investigator of, uh, they uh, decided that, you know, there was a real need to capture the oral histories of all the indigenous folks who were actively involved in developing some really important indigenous organizations here in our city, and as well as actively involved in, in resistance, um, throughout those years. So they, uh, they, uh, did, uh, some 30, some interviews with, with, uh, with indigenous folks active in that time. And so we've now gone through this next stage. Uh, Dr. John Loxley passed away Uh, A little over a year ago, so Kathy and I have taken up the, you know, the work, and we're now developing this book where we're basically taking all of those audio uh, oral histories Mm -hmm. and, and, and developing a book that we can use to educate younger folks here in Winnipeg who do not know about all the work that that went on because, you know, those stories haven't been told. And so mm. they're now they're being told and we're just putting them together in a textbook and we're going to offer a course here in the neighborhood where all the activism has taken place.
0: Mm. It's interesting uh, about how the physical space uh, of, of where you're located in uh, the Merchant's Corner and in the north part of, of Winnipeg, also part of the University of Winnipeg. Because it's separate, much like other universities have different campuses, is more conducive to indigenous students because it provides smaller classes. Now, in my community of Six Nations, uh, students go from grades one to eight in the community, but they have to go to high school off the community. So there's a bit of a transition there because they've been going within their own community for so long, and then they have to learn to exit the community. And there's there's a lot of trepidation and there's a lot of concern. And so I know a number of videos have been made around, around trying to help them transition.
1: As you've mentioned, David, the transition issue is a big issue for Mm. people coming, you know, from remote first Mm -hmm. nations, as well as it is for those transitioning in urban centers from, Mm. you know, communities where uh, and leaving their communities to go to other parts of the city. And even though university of Winnipeg here is downtown, it's still on the South side. There's like a real, a significant uh, barrier here in our city, Mm. which is the tracks, right? Right. So it's south of the tracks. It's this idea of going south of the tracks where um, people feel that they just don't feel as comfortable. So, so that's a huge transition. Um, um, So, you know, our idea, the, when we developed this was that, okay, let's, let's uh, part of that transition is to get people to feel comfortable about being in a post-secondary education Mm. where, you know, you can feel invisible. Um, And if you're um, uh, like some of our students also, if you're like a small number of indigenous students in this big space uh, you, you, you know, you often it's intimidating, right. Mm. You know, not only for indigenous students, but we've found that definitely to be the case for indigenous students who've experienced high levels of racism in our city. Mm. So our, our idea is to, to, to start to, to uh develop trust, develop relationships. Um they get to know the the professors here, um they get to, you know, develop uh relationships with a cohort of students and then they they eventually take courses at the main campus. It's mm-hmm. not that we right. you know don't want to, sure. but it's just a way to slowly transition so that it isn't completely overwhelming. Um, and they just you know often end up just leaving because they yeah. just uh it's just too too difficult for them.
0: I'm wondering if if the 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 uh, some of the other things that that are involved in this um, may be the fact that many of these indigenous students are coming from families where no one has attended a post secondary institution before, so it's all brand new to them. No one is there to help them or guide them or give them that some some kind of feedback in terms of what to expect when you go to you know university, uh, how to prepare yourself, all of those kind of things. And when they're the first, if they if they, if they're the first person in their family that could be going to a post-secondary institution, uh, that could be very scary in itself. Add to that, of course, the intergenerational trauma. Yeah, that's
1: exactly right. So there's many, many um, uh, barriers uh, and and, uh, many factors that contribute to that. You know, people feeling lost and, you know, not really feeling a sense of belonging. But, you know, for sure. So you've got students who are very often the first in their family. Some Many of our students are students who've left school, mm. um, you know, as, as teenagers and they've mm. come back later as adults. Yep. Many of our students are single parents. Yep. Um, but yes, often, very often the first in their family to, to, to make the, uh, you know, the attempt at, at, at university. And so, you know, we're really, our aim is to, you know, sort of de- demystify it a bit, but also to provide, You know, develop relationships. We're small, you know, so we can do that. We're very, you know, we're here always, you know, and we're our doors are open. And then we're also still here when they move on and take courses at the main campus because they Mm. can't complete their full degree here. They do have to take other courses. And so but we're sort of we become a home base for them so that they always know, you know, that they can come here for support um there are additional supports as well at the main campus but really it is this this really small safe space that really makes a big difference for our students. Mm.
0: Uh, I want to I want to get into talking a little bit more about the the space itself because I understand that uh, there was involvement from the indigenous community from the very start when the, when the, the building started to be repurposed and even even the idea of choosing that space. Um, yes. I understand, but before we get into that, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. uh, 97.5 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Dr. Shauna McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And we're talking to her about an article she co-authored in the conversation, which is entitled Want to Decolonize Education? Where Classes Are Held Matters. And she co-authored this with Kathy Mallett. And unfortunately, Kathy was not able to join us uh, for this conversation, but she's uh, with us in spirit, so it's a pleasure to have Dr. Shauna McKinnon here with us to talk about this. Dr. McKinnon, the the, the physical space itself um, of uh, where this building is, uh, as, as you pointed out, it's in the north end of um, uh, of Winnipeg, and it's the the old Merchant Hotel. Now it's called known as Merchant's Corner. What can you tell us about it itself in terms of of why why is this why was this space important?
1: Yeah, so that's part of part of the importance of the story for sure. So, uh, so the space that I'm in right now here, where well, as I talk to you at Merchant's mm. Corner, it used to be. A um, a hotel called the Merchant's Hotel, and it was you know a problematic space in the neighborhood. um, And for many many years, so along the the strip here that is Selkirk Avenue, there are a number of initiatives that have developed over the years that have been education focused. um, And uh, the one most recently that I think really inspired moving forward with redeveloping Merchant's Corner, which has you know been in people's mind for many years was well, just down the street, we have an intergenerational uh, uh, a center that provides uh child care for mm-hmm. indigenous kids in the neighborhood mm-hmm. uh and there's uh, like a, a quite a bit of involvement of, of indigenous elders in that project and so You know, it's like about four doors down. And so when they they've got an outdoor space for the kids to play in and here you had this merchant's hotel, which, you know, was a problematic space. There was a lot of, you know, drug dealing going on here. And, you know, there was it was a really kind of... um, a place where there would be, you know, some, you know, sort of an impetus for some violence in the neighborhood. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so the elders, you know, really wanted to change this space, to take take over this space, to reclaim this mm. this space. And so, and they wanted it to be focused on education. So that was sort of the beginning. It mm. was really the idea of elders. And then the community came together through the North End Community Renewal Corporation and really started to do the work to, uh, to, to envision what it would be and then uh, make that happen. So the, the building itself is owned by uh, Merchants Corner, Inc., Which so it's communi- owned by the community mm. here in the North End. Um, it's got housing attached to it, which mm. uh, provides um, rent-geared-to-income social housing for, for people uh, in the neighborhood, but uh, students uh, are a priority. Uh, and then, again, there's like a child care Space Just a few doors down so students can take their, their children there while they learn. And so it's just really, you know, n- another phase of development on the, in the neighborhood that is very much reclaiming the space and focusing on education in a way that is comfortable p- for people in the neighborhood.
0: That sounds wonderful. With all those, uh, you know, facilities available right close by, I I can imagine if uh, if I were a single parent, uh, you know, and had a young child, to know that uh, I had this child at you know very close to me, uh, I'd feel much more uh, relaxed about attending class because I know that if something comes up, I can be there really quickly uh, to to deal with whatever the child's needs are. Uh, That that must be a great uh, a a great benefit for some of those students that do have kids that are attending classes.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and if you were here right now, I would take you into a classroom, which is, <laughs> which um, is my favorite classroom where if you look out the window, um, you can see the, uh, the outdoor space where the kids are playing uh, at the childcare care san- center. Mm-hmm at Makusang Child Care Center. And so, you know, you could have, you know, moms sitting in the classroom uh, <laughs> taking a class and, you know, they can look out the window and see their <laughs> children playing. So it, it is a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty um, important model in many respects, I think.
0: Right. I guess the other thing along with that is the fact that, um, Aside, a, You know, unlike uh, a, a, a student without those responsibilities, uh, well, that says it right there. Uh, a parent, a, a young student that has a, a child to take care of has a huge amount of responsibility already to look after. So that on top of taking classes uh, that's, that's, uh, that's really something to be able to manage all that and, and handle it all.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was, I think what we really started to see this real divide when we were, were teaching online. And so just even for myself, I, you know, used to teaching in this environment and then suddenly teaching online, I could see, you can see it in front of you, right? You've got students there who, first of all, um, you know, you know, won't have uh, the same level of access, right, mm-hmm. to the internet, and yeah. so you know they can't they can't participate the same sure. way on a Zoom meeting than other students right. can, or you know they're stuck at home and with their kids there mm-hmm. during the pandemic, and so they're trying to you know concentrate while they're also caring for their mm-hmm. children, and so you know really you could just see like we're trying to play p- create this space here, you know that that you know in the spirit of of. Of of equity, and you could Mm. see the equity kind of falling apart Mm. when people are, you know, learning online. And there were some students for whom it worked just fine, you know, because they're at home in their their comfortable surroundings, you know, with no disruption. Mm -hmm. And other students just didn't have that opportunity.
0: Right now, of course, we've been into the pandemic for a couple of years now, I guess, and I'm just wondering, you did hear back, or you just you just gave some some examples of what you uh, were were getting from from students that, uh, and you talked about the differences uh, of what even. People might have in terms of access to the internet. Some people may not have had uh, a strong connection, et cetera, or had that ability to connect the way they want to. Um, what are What are you hearing back at this point from some of the experiences that students, uh, you know, um, did experience through this time?
1: Yeah, so we're, it's definitely quite clear that the students who struggled the most. Uh, were students who you know were coming from you know lower socioeconomic situations, you know people with children at home, those sorts of things. The students who seemed to manage better were you know you know more the more privileged students. But the other thing that we're hearing um, from both of those students is that. Uh, what really they miss the most of being here was the, the ability to develop relationships with students mm. who they might not have otherwise had a conversation with mm-hmm. um, and being able to share in the classroom because the same sharing does not happen online. And I can say that right. just from my experience, um, students here, because we're small, we, have a, we never have more than 25 students in a class when, you know, we're talking about difficult things you will have somebody feeling safe they can see the students around them in the classroom and they they can decide you know whether or not they feel safe to share and they do and there's like a there's a kind of learning that happens there that just doesn't happen online and somebody is less likely uh to openly share i find um on a zoom call
0: mm, yeah yeah for because sure they're
1: not in the space where they can look somebody in the eye right
0: yeah yeah uh, when you mentioned relationships, the other thing I thought about, and it, it goes hand in hand with exactly why you, uh, why, somewhat why you wrote the article and also why you talk about the space as it is, and that is reconciliation. Um, you know, that whole idea of bringing people together, uh, both the indigenous and non-indigenous. And, um, and having some of those, uh, uh, you know, those middle, middle uh, class kids coming to those classes. I'm wondering, now I know it's, it's only been open for a little while, maybe a year. It's been about a year since it's been open. Uh, Like, The building itself, 2020? No, no,
1: we've been here for a few years. I think we've been here for four years now.
0: Oh, because I I thought I saw the building was starting to uh, uh, be worked on in 2018 and then it it had a grand opening in 2020, I thought. I Yeah,
1: but we opened up a bit. Ah. Uh, The grand opening was before, yeah, grand opening was after we had actually moved in, yeah, for sure, because there was still still work being done here (laughs) while
0: we were in the space. Okay, right. So, So then now, that's great that you've been there that long. So what kind of things have you, heard back or have you seen in terms of the relationship building that you were just talking about and uh, that uh, that kind of reconciliation that you talk about uh, that is needed uh, as we move forward are you finding that that You are hearing from some of these uh, students that wouldn't necessarily have been exposed or or, uh, know about the Indigenous uh, history uh, as much as they might have now from being exposed to this in this environment. Are are you finding that it is having benefits? Are you hearing back from students about this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's so many examples, I mean, of that, how that all plays out. And so one of the critical pieces, and this isn't even something we thought about when we Mm -hmm. were designing this program, it was kind of serendipitous, and it's Mm -hmm. been super important. But what happens is, because this is largely an Indigenous space, the students that come here that are not, you know, have not been in the North End, they're Mm -hmm. not Indigenous themselves, you know, sort of your more middle class, Mm
0: -hmm. privileged
1: folks from the South Side, I would say, when they come here, like they're they, sometimes they are, you can, you know, when they first come, they're a little bit nervous, right? Because they've heard all these terrible things about course, the North End yeah. and Selbrook Avenue. Mm. So they come and there's like a little bit of trepidation at the beginning, and then they slowly get comfortable. And and one of the, you know, and so one of the things we do is initially we really try to get people, you know, start to talk to each other and learn mm. where they're from, and accept that people are coming from different places. So, you know, one example I had uh, one year, a young man in my class who was um, a young indigenous guy who, you know, had been involved, you know, in the criminal justice system, and he mm. was going back to school. He was in my class. Next to him was sitting a young guy who was wanting to be, you know, a young white man from the south side who was wanting to be a police officer. Mm. Uh, taking criminal justice. And he thought, Oh, I'm going to take this as a, an elective and go right. to the North end sitting beside him. And so it was just kind of interesting because they were both coming from completely different perspectives, but they spent, you know, the term sitting beside each other, getting to know each other a little bit. Mm. And, you know, I don't know what, you know, who knows what happened, but I I'd like to believe that that young fella went back to the South side and maybe had a little bit of a different perspective on things that he came with and, mm-hmm. um, and that just, just, you know, that just does not happen right in, in sort of your typical education setting, because you know, they probably wouldn't have even known that about each other. Right. If in fact that one young man would have actually even gone to university in yeah. that setting, Right. but they would never have probably had an opportunity to, to, you know, to, to chat with each other and kind of get to know each other and in this kind of a safe space that we try to create. Right. And then yeah. students tell us that, you know, they, they, you know, they they open up after a while, and they you know they say, yeah. I mean, I grew up you know with this belief in this north that with mm. the north end as being this terrible place and being afraid you know of indigenous people and never having a meaningful conversation with an indigenous person, and this has completely transformed the way I see right. you know our city yeah. and the experiences of people. And so that's like the first steps of reconciliation, right? Mm. For them to come here and hear those truths mm. that are shared. Uh, and then, to maybe go back to where they live and maybe to challenge some of the racist um ideas that they are they continue to be exposed to,
0: right, as we finish off our time, at the bottom of your article, you say post-secondary institutions have a responsibility to create safe, decolonizing spaces for this kind of work to take place. and uh, do you do you think that that is happening in in other university settings as well?
1: Well, you know, I don't know if any, I mean, you know, our community is, you know, we've developed something that fits with our community. So I can't speak to what others mm. are doing, but, but I can say that there's still this tendency to try to, um, to bring, you know, to bring people into a space that is, you know, this still a Western designed you know, a colonial institution and, mm. and, and, you know, maybe welcome people in, but not doing what, what we're trying to do is the opposite. No, let's get out. Let's get out of the, the colonial institution into the community and let's be open to different ways of teaching, bringing different knowledges into the classroom. Um, I don't know how much that's happening. And I think one of the benefits we have is because we are out here in the North end. Mm. I would say sometimes we kind of fly under the radar a little bit, mm. uh, and are able to do some things maybe that wouldn't be as easy for us to do in the, in, uh, on the, the main campus.
0: Right, right. All right, uh, Dr. Shannon McKinnon, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you about this. And I, we thank you for writing the article. Uh, as I mentioned, it is called Want to Decolonize Education? Where Classes Are Held Matters. And you can find that in The Conversation online at con- theconversation.ca. And uh, read the article for yourself. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Dr. McKinnon and uh, her uh, co-author, Kathy Mallett, would be uh, more than happy to hear back from you if you have comments on it and and how perhaps you've seen this in your community or area or post-secondary institution. Shauna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show and talk about this.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, David. It's been a pleasure.
0: All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Shauna McKinnon. She's an associate professor and chair of the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies. And it is a pleasure talking to her about her article, Want to Decolonize Education, Where Classes Are Held Matters. That's our show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.